Welcome to the Personalized Medicine Podcast. This is the place where scientists, clinicians, and entrepreneurs discuss the progress of this rapidly developing field. I am your host, Alexander Yahensky. Let's start. Good day, dear listener. Welcome to the episode 7 of the Personalized Medicine Podcast. Today, we are going to mix things up a little. I'm very happy and very proud to present to you a new co-host of our podcast, my good friend, Luisa Halmaya Vaca. Luisa is a top-notch biochemist and an avid believer in the strengths of diversity in science. She studied biochemistry with a minor in business at the University of British Columbia in Canada. She then moved to Göttingen in Germany and completed her PhD at German Primate Center, where she studied novel diagnostic methods within the One Health context. It was also the time when I met Luisa at one of the campus events. It quickly became clear to us that we have much in common. Our fascination with molecular biology, interest in the interface of science and business, and, as it turned out recently, passion for podcasting. And I'm very happy that now, a few years after we first met, we are working together on this very podcast. Luisa will focus on uncovering for you the topics of microbiome, big data, and ethics in personalized medicine. I'm very excited and hope you are too. So please give it up to Luisa and the episode 7. Luisa, the floor is yours now. Thank you, Alexander, for the introduction. Let's get started with episode 7. In this episode, we are addressing a topic that is important to many areas of personalized medicine, data privacy protection. It is my pleasure to welcome our guest today, Dr. Rachel Hendricks-Stirrup, who currently serves as a health policy counsel at the Future of Privacy Forum and is also a research fellow at the Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute and the Harvard Medical School. Rachel has a background in both pharmacology and toxology, as well as in legal studies in the area of environmental and health science policy. She's a doctor of health science, an author, researcher, and scholar on ethical, legal, and social issues around the use and processing of consumer-generated health and genetics data in precision medicine. Rachel, it is our pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to um, speak with you and to engage with your podcast audience today. Great. So let's get started by talking a little bit more about your current role as Health Policy Council. Could you explain what the future of Privacy Forum is and what your role is within the organization? For sure. Um, at the Future of Privacy Forum, which I'll call FPF for short, I am Health Policy Council and lead. Um, recently coming on board in October of 2019. FPF itself is a nonprofit think tank located in Washington, D.C. in the United States. And we um, uh, pride ourselves in being data stewards across multiple sectors where uh, data is generated, shared, exchanged, processed, used, etc. 
Um, we believe that uh, data can be leveraged um, for good. And we are here to uh, ensure that across multiple sectors, data is used in ways that can be meaningful um, to stakeholders and society in general. Sounds very interesting. And uh, what about your role as Health Policy Council? What do you focus on? Sure. So as Health Policy Council, I focus on um, a number of issues, but our main focus is on uh, health data that is generated outside of regulated um, areas. Um, for example, health data that is um, generated and shared outside of traditional health settings like health insurance settings, um, hospital or health system settings, understanding what that means for society since that data is in fact unregulated and what we can do um, in order to make sure that patients and consumers are in fact uh, protected um, uh, in the event that their data is uh, shared with multiple parties across uh, multiple sectors um, and also uh, developing practical solutions and tools for companies that are looking to uh, understand and determine what best privacy practices are or should be um, as they generate and share that kind of data, um, health data uh, that is um, outside of traditional um, regulated uh, areas. To focus our conversation today on the topic of data privacy protection, I would like to start talking a bit about genetic testing, which has also been one of your research focuses as an academic. In a recent publication in 2019, you write, genetic testing holds significant and growing importance and is one of the fastest growing sectors of medicine. Could you elaborate on the statement a little bit and also, or especially on the use of genetic testing in clinical settings? Yes, absolutely. So genetic testing, um, at least on, in clinical settings, um, is not new. Um, it's something that's existed uh, for quite some time. Um, although testing um, takes place inside what they call CLIA certified laboratories or regulated labs um, that undergo rigorous evaluation by regulatory authorities and also the uh, clinical community to ensure that uh, these tests um, meet uh, specificity and sensitivity ranges that are acceptable um, in clinical practice. And this is um, to make sure that patients are safely diagnosed and um, to also make sure that false positives or false negatives are controlled in clinical settings when uh, making diagnosis based off diagnoses based off of genetic information. And so, um, again, as well, or at least in tandem over recent years, we're seeing or we have seen a rise in consumer genetic um, consumer genetic testing, where direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies have entered the scene to not only provide ancestry services based on genetic information, but now uh, genetic health reports that can convey to consumers their genetic health risks or the risks of developing certain diseases or conditions um, based on the presence of genetic markers in, um, uh, in their DNA um, uh, or in their family's DNA. So we're seeing that while consumers can engage in the consumer genetic space for recreational purposes or for purposes of 
understanding their ancestry or um, or what foods they might um, be uh, likely to perceive as delicious or not delicious. Um, they're also seeing some results like BRCA1 and 2 mutations that are of concern and uh, for which they take to their uh, doctors uh, or genetic counselors to talk more about um, to see if uh, any action can be taken uh, based on those results. Um, so we're starting to see kind of this blur area or this blurred space between um, genetic testing um, to make clinical decisions and genetic testing uh, for mere recreation or for entertainment purposes. Um, so we're really trying to, within the medical community and then also within the data stewardship community, understand how we can make sure that that data is used in meaningful ways, but also in ways that um, are not discriminatory and also in ways that can um, conserve uh, patient and consumer privacy. Actually, this topic of direct-to-consumer genetic testing uh, is what first got me interested in the Future of Privacy Forum. Um, maybe for the listeners who are unfamiliar with these kind of services, what we're talking about is services, for example, in the U.S. that are available under um, in companies such as 23andMe and Ancestry. And um, what I found interesting is that in 2018, uh, the Future of Privacy Forum along with uh, leading consumer genetic and personal genomic testing companies, um, released privacy best practices um, for the use of these tests. Um, so Rachel, could you talk a bit more about this initiative? Absolutely. So prior to me joining FPF, um, we um, had a health uh, policy fellow by the name of Carson Martinez. Um, she did excellent work with FPF and its uh, genetic testing um, stakeholders or consumer genetics uh, stakeholders to develop a set of best privacy practices for consumer genetic testing. Um, they uh, came up with uh, three core elements. One, promoting transparency. Two, providing choices. And three, enhancing protections. Um, for uh, consumers. So within the scope or um, element of promoting transparency, um, they mention at a high level um, that consumers should be provided with key privacy practices and detailed explanations of how companies, the direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies um, particularly, collect, use, and share genetic data. Um, and also, um, uh, making sure that consumers have educational resources about the basics and benefits and also the risks of genetic testing. Um, and then also annual transparency reports about law enf enforcement requests. Um, transparency around that is in especially important, especially uh, considering the fact that um, within the last year or so, it's been revealed that law enforcement um, can identify uh, leads uh, for uh, cold cases um, by taking genetic data from crime scenes and uploading them to uh, ancestry or genealogy um, databases that are public um, and that have lots of users who download their genetic information from their direct-to-consumer genetic testing company uh, accounts and upload them to 
these public databases. So um, moving forward into the next uh, element of providing choices, um, uh, our best practice document states that consumers can give express consent for the collection and use of their genetic data. Um, so giving consumers the opportunity to opt out, opt out or opt into certain uh, sharing activities that the company might engage in, for example, sharing genetic information with other companies, um, and then also giving consumers the ability to provide in informed consent for any research that these companies um, undertake. And then also giving consumers access um, and also the ability to correct or delete their genetic information. And then also giving them the ability to request that their biological samples be destroyed at any time. And then in the third element, enhancing protections, uh, companies um, would agree to not share their consumer's genetic data with employers or insurance companies, which in the United States is, is extremely um, attributed to the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act that um, bans the um, that bans discrimination based on genetic information within employment and health insurance settings. Um, and then also um, not sharing genetic information with educational institutions as well, um, in addition to employers and insurance companies. Um, and that is unless the consumer the consumers themselves give consent um, to allow this activity, the sharing activity to occur. And then also companies will not share genetic information, or at least companies agree to not share genetic information with law enforcement. And that again, that ties to the transparency reporting that I described under the element of promoting transparency. And then lastly, um, enhancing protections through strong data security practices and privacy by design elements um, within their, uh, their data um, storage um, and sharing platforms. Um, those are three key three key components to um, enhancing protections that companies who sign on to our best practices agree to. So taken all together, um, we have a group of companies that have come forward and we list them on our website. Um, they've come forward to say that they support these best practices. Um, some um, big uh, consumer genetic testing companies like 23andMe, Ancestry, Helix, MyHeritage, and Habit have signed on, and then also some smaller companies like African Ancestry and Living DNA. We did have one company, Family Tree DNA, who initially signed on, but we had to strike from our best practices, um, or we had to strike from our list of companies who agreed to our best practices, and that's because Family Tree DNA um, made a business decision to um, partner with uh, the U.S. FBI or Federal Bureau of Investigation, which is a federal law enforcement agency. Um, so for that reason, um, you'll see on our website that that particular company, Family Tree DNA, was striped from our list of companies that have signed on to these best practices. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing um, those three elements, transparency, choice, and protection. Um, with us. Uh, so you were just talking about um, that one of uh, the companies um, kind of exited the um, best practices. So do you monitor if these companies are abiding by the best practices uh, on a regular basis? It's not something that we directly monitor, but it's something that it's something that we certainly um, try to stay aware of. 
Um, in the family tree DNA case, we became aware of this activity by reading stories um, published in the media. Um, uh, there may have been discussions um, prior to that that I'm not aware of um, outside of the media, but um, but essentially, um, given that this partnership between Family Tree DNA and the FBI were made public, um, we took it upon ourselves to, um, on our public website, reflect this within our uh, reflect this activity um, in our best practices um, blog post for ge- consumer genetic testing. Yeah, um, I I think the best practices put forward, especially as you explain them, um, make a lot of sense and um, cover a lot of territory that is important uh, in terms of um, privacy and choice and protection. Um, but are these best practices enough to really reassure the public um, and also the consumer about privacy concerns? And maybe a second part to that question do you see that there is going to be some kind of FDA review or regulation uh, to these direct-to-consumer genetic tests in the future? Yes, absolutely. That's a that's an excellent question, and it's something that continues to be explored, especially um, in the health space um, um, and among the personalized uh, medicine community. Last year, I published a peer-reviewed uh, commentary in Journal of Personalized Medicine, which is an international um, journal um, about these best practices and how the practices could be augmented or improved or enhanced rather in a way that that, uh, protects the privacy of consumers who might engage in these products to to learn about health. Um, in that publication, which I published um, through my research fellowship at Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute and Harvard Medical School, I added that as it pertains to health, um, companies should uh, think twice about whether or not click wrap or browse wrap um, terms of use uh, agreements and privacy policies, or at least acknowledgement of these policies through click wrap or browse wrap um, mechanisms are appropriate, especially when the consumers are um, ordering uh, tests with uh, actionable health implications like um, BRCA1 and 2 breast cancer um, DNA markers um, or testing for those specific um, DNA markers. Um, are these, or at least would click wrap or browse wrap um, mechanisms be sufficient um, in such cases where um, these companies being unregulated by HIPAA, um, these companies would have access to that information and, and would be able to uh, share them in ways um, uh, that uh, the consumers um, can consent to. Um, and then also, um, since these privacy practice in terms of use agreements are available? Are they written at reading levels um, that are uh, that are acceptable by the health community? Like for example, the National Library of Medicine recommends a specific reading level um, when conveying um, health information or health education. Um, so uh, I would, I personally uh, suggested that these companies um, uh, visit the National Library of Medicine guidance on uh, appropriate reading levels 
um, for uh, conveying health information or um, engaging audiences in health education. Um, so the, so those, those are two things that I recommended in addition, but that's not to say that the health community has not um, received these best practices well. Um, the Association for Molecular Pathologists, for example, um, they uh, decided uh, recently to, um, uh, to support these uh, best practices for um, consumer genetic testing um, in uh, one of their recent um, reports as an association. So uh, they uh, publicly ascribed to the best practices in the recent National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine um, event that was held last fall. Um, and um, just seeing that occur at, during that wide public forum um, just really shows that these best practices are uh, well-received by the medical community, but, um, but also that we're still thinking about ways to um, enhance or um, augment these best practices in ways that would probably um, be even stronger um, for the health community and stakeholders um, within this community. Yeah, I think you touch on some uh, really important points, um, especially on the implementation of um, these best practices and how to enhance them potentially in the future. I would like to talk about uh, one more. Uh, thing that happened um, earlier this year, um, the DNA testing company 23andMe sold the rights to a new drug that it developed um, using its customers' data. Um, and some of that research uh, and drug discovery that can be sourced from the huge database of 23andMe is really exciting. Um, but at the same time, there is concern around privacy also from, um, from media outlets. So how can we strike that balance between discovery and privacy in the future? Absolutely. That is a great question. Um, I think what we saw there is 23andMe demonstrating um, a novel way of developing, um, not necessarily uh, like a, a high need, high groundbreaking drug, but, um, but really just demonstrating a proof of concept about what can be done with massive amounts of genetic data or genomic information. And um, this is certainly exciting, uh, certainly novel. Um, I can certainly see uh, societal benefits to this. However, with regard to privacy, a lot of concerns uh, surfaced about this. Um, one of the questions that came up, uh, as I saw in the media, is whether or not the consumers um, who contributed to the data that led to the development of this therapeutic whether or not they consented to the use of their data for that purpose. And uh, 23andMe, in fact, um, emphasized that the consumers had agreed to or consented to the use of their data for um, research purposes. Um, and they consented to the use of their data for, um, uh, I guess, arguably product development um, purposes. And so, um, again, it's argued that... Um, in this proof of concept that the consumers uh, consented to this activity and, and therefore um, 23andMe took it upon themselves to uh, demonstrate their ability to, to, um, to do this. So, um, so going back to privacy and our best practices, 
um, there is the uh, element of providing consumers with choices, choices as to whether or not their data can be used um, for research, um, giving them the ability to consent to this activity. Um, so, so again, this occurred under the notion that the consumers had already consented to this kind of thing. Um, so really, I believe it just boils down to um, probably whether or not uh, consumers um, might really understand how their data can be used. I think no one predicted the data being used in this way. Um, and again, you mentioned this is a, a very exciting thing, um, but then also um, something to think about in the future in terms of how this data can be leveraged in these new and novel and unique ways. Um, and then probably getting customers to think twice maybe about what they're consenting to. Um, um, not that drug development is a bad thing, um, but it certainly uh, is a novel thing um, or unexplored territory when thinking about um, this development occurring solely uh, based on the assessment of genetic information. Yeah, and I think one point uh, that I just want to stress that you just said was that the data being used in new and exciting ways that maybe at the point of time where um, when the data is collected is not even perceivable yet um, and uh, not even to researchers, but and then definitely not to the general public. Um, and always keeping that in mind also um, um, as you move forward with those databases, I think that's very important um, that you just mentioned that. Um, so I think we, we talk quite a bit about uh, genetic data, and um, it's a field where, as you said, there, were, there are quite a few companies already, um, but there are privacy issues outside of um, genetic data. So, um, yeah, could you maybe talk a bit more about some other rising health privacy issues um, that you're working on uh, or that you foresee? Yes, absolutely. So um, gen consumer genetic testing is just one area of, um, of concern in which, you know, health data or genetic health data can be generated um, by unregulated um, entities. Um, you also see that in um, the consumer wearables and uh, health app space where um, a lot of uh, startups are, are emerging that are uh, claiming to be able to... Um, provide faster diagnoses by leveraging their, um, their AI or machine learning platforms. Um, you see um, uh, wearable companies um, that allow uh, consumers to wear tracking devices that can tell them about their sleep patterns, heart rate, um, also their uh, glucose blood glucose, glucose levels, um, especially if the consumers are uh, diabetic. Um, and they're collecting all of this uh, information and, and also uh, behavioral health information as well, um, especially if, the, um, if some companies are leveraging platforms that are meant to address mental health uh, issues. They're collecting all of this data and sharing it with, um, with uh, health care entities, um, other companies that might not necessarily play a role in the continuum of care. Um, and they're doing this, um, uh, you know, just by getting consent from the consumers or by just having their consumers agree to their terms of use and 
um, privacy policies. Um, so again, a number of entities and companies are emerging um, in this space that are um, not just collecting um, uh, health information um, and generating um, uh, evidence of uh, based on that health information that they collect, um, but you know they're also storing this information. So there's some cybersecurity issues that surface um, as well. And um, FPF actually, um, prior to me coming on board in 2016, they uh, put forth best practices, best privacy practices for consumer wearables and health apps. Um, so that's uh, certainly something that FPF thought about um, years ago. Um, and it's something that we continue to think about moving forward um, as more unique and novel ways of collecting or generating health information um, surface, uh, this day and age. So, um, that's another area beyond, um, just consumer genetics that, uh, we're keeping a close eye on. Um, and I also mentioned, uh, AI and machine learning. Um, that's also another area that we are keeping close tabs on. We recently brought on, um, an AI and ethics council by the name of Sarah Jordan, who is leading, um, that effort. And she and I are working closely to, uh, examine um, issues at the forefront of privacy and AI and machine learning. We are doing this show for you and your feedback is very important to us. So if you have any suggestions or comments, would like us to cover a specific topic or recommend a person we should interview, please write us an email to team at personalizedmedicinemedia.com or you can just reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn. Just type in Personalized Medicine Podcast and you will find us there. To make sure that you won't miss the new episodes of our show, please subscribe to the newsletter at our website, personalizedmedicinemedia.com. It's one word, personalized medicine media, spelled with Z as in American English. Our website is also the place where you can find show notes for each episode that include bios of our guests, links to their most notable work and projects, and follow-up reads on the topics we discuss during the episode. And now, let's get back to the interview. Yeah, you mentioned some yeah, really interesting topics around wearables, um, also medical databases and AI and machine learning. Um, I would like to dive a bit deeper, um, maybe on the topic of AI and machine learning. You just mentioned that you just uh, recently... Uh, maybe started working on that. Um, but it's actually a topic that has come up quite a few times in our episodes, uh, talking to people. Uh, there seems to be a lot of interest in it and a lot of development within the healthcare sector. Um, and there's it's a really exciting field of technology. And I think a lot of people um, <laughs> don't even know what is possible yet uh, with this new with these new developments. Um, could you go a little bit more into detail uh, on privacy concerns around this technology? Yeah, for sure. Well, I think um, what we're seeing here is a need to strike a balance between, uh, between privacy and um, the need to diagnose. Um, AI and machine learning, um, when these tools are developed, um, it would require large amounts of uh, data. A lot of times this data can be de-identified. Um, 
And um, sometimes identification in some ways is necessary, such as knowing a person's uh, race and gender or ethnicity um, in order to uh, train these algorithms appropriately. So, um, so really there's a need for that in order to make sure that um, certain groups are, are not excluded or left out of these algorithms and um, suffer the consequences of misdiagnosis as a result if these algorithms are deployed in clinical settings. Um, but then there's also the need to um, identify individuals after deploying these algorithms in clinical settings. Um, for example, the uh, Find FH algorithm that was developed by the FH Foundation. And when I say FH, that is short for familial hypercholesterolemia. Um, that algorithm was developed uh, in order to um, diagnose individuals um, with electronic health records across various health systems, um, identify uh, potential uh, FH patients based on clinical indicators that can be scanned um, uh, if the data is within those individuals' electronic health records. And... Um, identify who those individuals are so that way um, they can be properly diagnosed um, and or treated if they're not treated at that time appropriately for their high cholesterol or other clinical signs or symptoms of FH. Um, so we're looking at the deployment of um, uh, AI machine learning in that kind of way where we do want to identify people in order to diagnose and treat. Um, but then also we want to develop these algorithms in a way that's privacy centric. So that way um, individuals are um, uh, able to consent to the use of their data for that purpose. Um, and also striking a balance between including specific identifiers um, within these uh, algorithms, just to make sure that again, uh, certain subpopulations are not um, underrepresented in the algorithms, which might lead to more harm um, than good uh, in clinical settings. So really at that point or within this, within this scope, it's all about finding a balance between the need to diagnose, but also the need to um, exclude identifiers where appropriate, um, just to make sure that uh, researchers are not um, overstepping their bounds um, in terms of what patients uh, have or ha have not consented to um, regarding the use of their um, sensitive health information. Yeah, uh, I think that some of the points you mentioned are really important. And I think they all also go back to, uh, again, even though it's not related to, or it's not the same topic as genetic testings, but they go back to those uh, three things you mentioned, transparency, choice, and protection. Um, so I think uh, those are three buzzwords um, that are very important to think about continuously. Absolutely. Yeah. And for, um, for medical databases, which is another thing that you've mentioned, um, where all this information is stored, so genetic information, um, also sometimes uh, samples, um, clinical data, um, any kind of results um, from AI and machine learning research, they're also vulnerable, and you've uh, alluded to that a little bit earlier. And there has been reports um, of medical databases being hacked around the world, uh, not just in, in the U.S., but um, before this episode, I read about a report in Singapore 
Um, so what does that mean uh, or how do we address that challenge of um, data being extremely valuable and at the same time we have this increasingly digitalized healthcare system? Yeah, that's a, a, a great question. And I think it's a broader question that everyone's thinking about, not just in healthcare, but even outside of healthcare. Everything is digital. Everyone has a digital footprint. Um, and that certainly um, uh, encompasses uh, the healthcare space as well. Um, so going back to enhancing protections within our uh, genetic testing best privacy practices, we feel that companies who take it upon themselves to generate and store and safeguard um, the data that they collect, and this would also include um, healthcare systems as well that generate and store digital health data, they should, uh, in the course of doing this, make sure that they have strong data security uh, controls and measures and practices. Um, so again, this touches on cybersecurity, as I mentioned earlier, um, but then also privacy by design. Are the systems that they're using to store and collect this data, do they have strong um, privacy features that uh, would allow um, uh, individuals to still access or specific individuals to access the data when needed, but also keep those with unauthorized access out? Um, so again, going back to enhancing protections, companies and systems should really think about uh, as they collect more and more data, how they can uh, adopt uh, strong data security practices and privacy by design elements. For example, uh, encryption methods, um, those kinds of things that are necessary to make sure that only authorized persons have access to that data and um, also to make sure that there are other controls in place to make sure that the data, once accessed and used, is used in ways that are acceptable and that are consented to um, by data subjects. So even having um, strong ethical review practices in place is extremely important uh, in tandem to strong cybersecurity practices and controls. We talked a lot about privacy-related challenges so far. Um, however, to stress, also, you talked about this in, in the beginning, the Future of Privacy Forum describes itself as data optimists and states that the organization believes that the power of data for good is a net benefit to society. Um, so I, I think here the question is, do you see that strict privacy laws, so beyond best practices, inhibit technological development, um, especially in the healthcare sector? Um, that's an excellent question, and it's another thing that we're monitoring very closely, specifically among our legislative team. Um, we're closely monitoring new uh, and comprehensive privacy bills um, that are introduced by various states here in the U.S. Um, and also abroad. Um, we are paying close attention to uh, laws that have come into effect, like the California Consumer Privacy Act. Um, and uh, so looking at um, how they define sensitive information, how health information is defined within that or included in that definition, how genetic information is defined or included in that definition, um, understanding um, 
where or at what point um, that information might be exempt um, from certain uh, privacy standards or regulations or provisions um, within those laws and bills. Um, some exemptions that we uh, typically like to see is, um, is that uh, health information uh, can be used to um, uh, support uh, socially beneficial research, um, like public health research, um, also population health research. Um, we like to see that kind of language or provisions in these comprehensive privacy um, bills. And then also um, um, language around um, whether the data is collected in a way that's um, sound and fair and at the consent of uh, individuals uh, generating the data. Um, those are things um, that we like to see. So, um, so while we do support in general um, privacy legislation um, in the U.S. and abroad, we also like to see um, carve-outs or exemptions um, for uh, health data being used in ways that can support um, the uh, overall benefit of individuals, um, for example, such as in healthcare and health research. Yeah, those are really interesting points, um, and uh, I'm I'm glad to see that um, the FPF are data optimists um, and generally believe in the good of data uh, because I think it's here to stay. There'll be a lot more data that we're going to be generating, um, and I think that kind of leads us into uh, this question. So there's rapid advances in personalized medicine. And um, these advances are often faster than policy, right? So will there be continuous challenges associated with personalized medicine as we move forward? And um, is that also where you see the uh, future of privacy form uh, kind of fitting in and within its niche? Absolutely. Um, there are so many challenges, some foreseen, some unforeseen. Um, one of the ones we mentioned today is um, is the mere fact that um, 23andMe has figured out how to completely develop a new drug um, based off of the genetic data that they collect from consumers. So this is a unique and novel um, approach um, to drug development um, with uh, considerations um, that I think healthcare providers and um, health regulators uh, couldn't foresee. Um, so I know the uh, U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, um, I'm sure that they're probably trying to figure out how to uh, treat that. Um, they're still trying to figure out how to treat real-world data generated um, in traditional um, uh, covered entity spaces, or covered entity being um, an insurer or a healthcare provider covered under um, HIPAA here in the U.S., uh, HIPAA laws here in the U.S., um, still trying to figure out how to, how to consider real-world data and real-world evidence, given that it's a combination of regulated health data and unregulated health data, um, understanding what privacy means within that realm um, from both patient and provider perspectives. Um, and then also as um, we continue to understand the role of genetics in disease and healthcare and in health research, um, and also the role of genetic testing um, uh, in across the spectrum of um, 
diagnosis to treatment, um, how insurers are even, you know, considering um, that particular pathway. Um, from there, we can really understand what the uh, privacy concerns are, what the regulatory gaps are, and um, what's needed in practice to fill those gaps until uh, we have laws and regulations in place to protect patients and consumers along the patient and consumer spectrum that we're seeing now increasingly uh, in healthcare. I'm excited to see how this progresses uh, over the next years. Um, what is the best way for our audience to inform themselves about privacy concerns related to personalized medicine? Well, I think there are a number of ways. Uh, one of my favorites is to pay attention to uh, public comments submitted um, in the United States Federal Register online um, when regulatory authorities like the FDA or the Department of Health and Human Services, um, when they put out proposed rules um, that would uh, uh, regulate um, data that is considerable in the personalized medicine space, um, looking at the concerns filed by various organizations like the American Medical Association, privacy advocates um, like patient privacy rights, looking at what they're saying, um, looking at what individuals themselves uh, who might submit comments are saying. I'm a big fan of that. Um, also, um, uh, following um, case studies um, that are available on an open access basis and peer reviewed literature are always rich in information um, about uh, privacy concerns, especially as they relate to um, rare disease uh, patients and populations. Um, those are especially um, useful and helpful to understand what's needed and, and what the practical uh, gaps are um, with regard to protecting patient and consumer privacy. Um, those are just two examples. Um, other examples are um, paying attention to what's stated in the news. Um, that's always a, a great source of information, but even then reading between the lines between things that might be overhyped in the news and um, things that might be under uh, emphasized uh, in the news as well. Um, paying close attention to that because um, sometimes the, the loudest voices aren't necessarily representative of what's actually going out there or the true um, number of individuals being affected um, by that story or anecdote that you might read in the media. Um, and also, of course, staying up to date on um, what FPF um, talks about through our blog and newsletters. Um, since we try to uh, keep our ears and eyes open to those kinds of things and talk about them with the public, um, I think that's also one way of staying uh, in attuned to the latest um, events, um, both regulatory um, uh, and also um, among other stakeholders uh, in the space, staying attuned to what's going on, because that's something that we try to do um, for uh, not just um, uh, members of our organization, members and supporters of our organization, but also the general public. Thank you so much for those pointers and sources of information. Uh, make sure to check out our show notes online to find those links uh, mentioned by Rachel just now. We'll make sure to post those. Um, Rachel, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Um, it was uh, very insightful. I learned a lot about privacy, um, 
Also, those three points that you mentioned, transparency, choice, and protection, about some of the ways data, especially genetic data, is being used, uh, for example, in forensics, um, but also in terms of AI and machine learning. Um, so thank you very much. Before we end today's episode, uh, maybe you can uh, share with our listeners where they can find you online and how do they learn a little bit more about uh, future of Privacy Forum. Absolutely. Well, first off, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking with you and and talking about these uh, topics, which are near and dear to me, <laughs> as you can tell. <laughs> um, you can find me on social media, um, on LinkedIn, um, by my full name, Dr. Rachel Hendricks Stirrup. Um, you can also follow us uh, at FPF on our blog at fpf.org. And um, you can also um, follow FPF itself on various social media outlets like Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook as well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Personalized Medicine Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast online. This helps other listeners find us. For show notes to this episode, please visit our website, personalizedmedicinemedia.com. And finally, if you have any feedback or suggestions, write us an email to team at personalizedmedicinemedia.com or reach out to us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Have a great day and until next time.